You're listening to the free edition of Sweden in Focus from The Local. If you would like to listen to a full-length version of the podcast, as well as an additional midweek episode, please check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade to Membership Plus. Here's this week's free edition. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Hello and welcome to Sweden in Focus, the local's weekly news podcast. We are recording this episode on Thursday the 19th of October and today we're going to talk about how much COVID-19 there is in circulation and what you need to know about vaccinations. We'll look at how far along the government has come with its plans to revoke permanent residency from asylum seekers. We'll ask why so many interesting social initiatives in Sweden have been set up by immigrants. And finally, we'll delve into the biggest Swedish news story of the week, the murder in Brussels of two Swedish football fans by a gunman who pledged allegiance to the Islamic State terrorist group. I'm Paul Omani, and with me today from Malmö are the locals Emma Lovegren and Richard Orange. How are you both? Very well. Yeah, I'm okay, thanks. Good. Well, let's get straight into it then. And we'll start with a quick COVID-19 update. Judging from my own friends and family, variants of the virus are definitely back after the summer. But what are the figures telling us? Hardly anyone gets tested anymore. So it's 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 we don't have the kind of graphs that we had in the in when COVID was at its peak. But at the end of September, the public health authority tested 1,600 people at random. And they found that about 1.5% of them had COVID, which is about the same level as in March 2020, and quite a lot more than in the last, they call it a stick prove. I don't know how it translates into English, but in the last such test, which was, right. in, Sept- which was in September last year. The good news from the study really is that 93% of the population have antibodies against COVID-19, which is pretty much what you'd expect because I think 93.5% of people have had more than two jabs. So it shows that the right. jabs are giving people immunity or not necessarily immunity, but protection. And of the re- positive results that they found, which was only 30 out of 1,600 people, 12 were variants of Omicron BA 5.2, which was the one that was behind the last big wave of COVID in 2022. And seven were the newer Omicron BF7, which emerged at the end of 2022. But hardly anyone's ill. So there are 381 patients in hospital yesterday who had COVID, according to the Board of Health and Welfare. And about three quarters of those are they're there because of the COVID, you know, so mm. probably like 300 or something actual COVID patients. And that's a lot more than July when there were only about 70, but a lot less than 
the last peak in December last year when there were about 2,000 people in hospitals. So yeah, I mean, it's it's less bad than it was this time last year, I think. And when you look at people who are seriously ill, the number of people in intensive care, it's about one a day and then a death every sort of three or four days. So we had a question from a reader this week asking who should get vaccinated and when. What are the recommendations at the moment? So we're coming up both on the COVID and also just the normal flu season. So I'll talk you through both of those. So let's start with the, the COVID vaccine, Paul. Recommendations vary a little bit depending on like how old you are, if you have an underlying health condition, if you've been vaccinated before and so on. But kind of the basic general picture is that if you're older than 65 or if you have an underlying health condition, and that also includes pregnancy, then the Swedish recommendations say that you should get vaccinated this winter, even if you've been vaccinated before. If you're between 50 and 64 and you haven't previously been vaccinated, you should make sure to get a dose this winter. But Mm. if you've already been vaccinated, you don't have to, according to these recommendations. Now, for the rest of us who are over 18... There's no recommendation at all to get vaccinated. Like you don't even have to get a boost or get vaccinated for the first time. Now, you can still get vaccinated and the COVID vaccine is still free for everyone in Sweden. For teenagers under the age of 18, they should only get vaccinated if their doctor recommends it. But everyone else can get another booster dose even if they don't belong to a risk group. And you can get vaccinated against COVID at any time. So you can just go and get a vaccination now if you want to. But you may want to wait until after November 7th, because that's when the updated vaccine is expected to be available in Sweden, which is more sort of adapted to the kind of variants that are around now. And it's also when the vaccination campaign for the seasonal flu gets underway. So if you're hoping to get vaccinated against both COVID and the flu in one go, then Mm. it might be easier to wait. If you're in a risk group for the flu, you get the vaccine for free. If you're not in a flu risk group, you have to pay for it. It usually costs around like 200 to 400 kronor or something like that. And you also may have to wait a few weeks until everyone in risk groups has had a chance to get the flu vaccine. Okay, great. Thanks for filling us in. And we'll link to our article on the latest recommendations in the episode notes. On to politics now and the government's plans to limit asylum immigration to the bare minimum required by European Union law. Now, this is at the core of the TIDA agreement, the deal the three-party coalition signed with its support party, the far-right Sweden Democrats, and is a large part of why the Sweden Democrats agreed to the deal. Now, a couple of weeks ago, the government launched an inquiry that is going to look at things like revoking permanent residency from people who received permits on asylum grounds and how to recall asylum status from applicants no longer deemed to be under threat in their home countries. And we'll talk to our panellists about this in a few moments. But first, let's listen to a short excerpt from a recent interview Richard carried out with the Sweden Democrats immigration policy spokesman Ludwig Aspling. So we'll hear Aspling's thoughts on what his party is learning from its proximity to the government. But first, we listen to his response to a claim from the Migration Minister Maria Malmö-Stenegard that it might not be possible to rescind a positive administrative decision, such as the awarding of a permanent residency permit. Of course it's possible. Why would we waste time on impressing the issue if it wasn't possible? That wouldn't make any sense. We have a lot of stuff to do. It would make zero sense to work on something if it's not legally possible. Of course it is. How smooth has the process been of it with it, with the government parties of 
kind of discussing what should be in this inquiry and what the chair should look at and is there any things you've disagreed on that, that, that you've wanted to put in but you haven't been able to convince the other parties to put into it and vice versa anything that they wanted to take out that they've had to keep we all stand behind the document as it is mm-hmm. i mean the directives are negotiated obviously between the four parties we all stand behind it and uh, i think it's a fair compromise it's uh it's you know public knowledge that we don't uh, have the same sort of ideological standpoint all four parties mm-hmm. uh, so everything that we do is a compromise so obviously the, it's been uh, it's been a little bit of a back and forth until we were done but we all stand behind the text and i'm happy with that uh, as to the question of like how smooth has the process been very hard for me to answer because I've never been part of any other coalition government, mm-hmm. so I don't really know. It's, uh, it's, it's hard for me to compare. <laughs> you have to come back maybe after the next parliamentary period and ask me and say, well, is it more smooth now than it was before? Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll, uh, I can give you a good answer. Now, that was Ludwig Aspling from the Sweden Democrats, and there were lots of interesting takeaways from the interview, and we'll link in the notes to Richard's article. Now, it's interesting here that he says the Sweden Democrats have never been part of any other coalition. I mean, the fact is they're not part of this coalition government either. They just signed an agreement to back the three-party coalition government as long as it enacts policies they've agreed on. So to what extent have they become embedded in the workings of government while officially still being outside of it? Aspling certainly talked as if they are part of the government. Uh, He said how exciting it was to be able to see how government works from the inside for the first time. You know, how he's been an MP, but he's always been just in Parliament. He hasn't seen the workings of government from inside the government offices. And he also talked about how steep the learning curve had been for the Sweden Democrats within the government offices for the first six months, he said. He said now they know mm. the ropes, but for six months, he said, it, there was a huge amount to learn. And he said that as a result of that, he thinks the party is much stronger as a result because it knows how government inquiries work, how the civil service works, how, you know, just 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 the sort of thing that the Social Democrats are known for being masters of, you know, and, and yeah. he, he, he feels that the Sweden Democrats are now kind of getting that secret knowledge, not secret Mm. knowledge. but So I thought that was kind of interesting. And he also said that the next time, as you said, that the Sweden Democrats get into power, they will be in a much better position to use it. It's not an accident that they feel part of government because the the way the TDO agreement works, there are quite a lot of things they agreed to bring in which do leave the Sweden Democrats in a kind of halfway house. So even though they're not officially a party of the government, because that would have been, for a start, like too much for most moderate voters and definitely Liberal Party voters to stomach, they actually kind of are. And the first one of those is this thing called the Coordination Council, which is a sort of committee in the government offices, which is the civil service who start a lot of legislation and and do the kind of work behind a lot of legislation. And they're supposed to be kind of mostly apolitical in Sweden. And there's six Sweden Democrat appointed civil servants who sit on the Coordination Council. And then they work with counterparts from the moderates, Christian Democrats and Liberals on developing policies. And it gives them a, a view on the ground of how the policy is being developed and whether the TDO agreement is being fulfilled. So, mm. so that gives them a real uh, place inside the machinery of government. And the second big part of the TDO agreement that gives them externally a sense that they're part of the government is that spokespeople from the Sweden Democrats are 
able to lead press conferences alongside government ministers to announce the policies that are part of the agreement. So, for example, inquiry... Actually, I don't think they did have a press release on this inquiry to, to reduce immigration to the EU minimum, but... You know, Aspling has quite often stood alongside Maria Marmastenegord to announce various policies, as have other senior Sweden Democrats. So I think for the public, that gives the sense that it's them who, who's driving this forward in a way that a support party w- wouldn't normally have. You know, it gives, yeah. it gives them the external sense that they are the people driving this policy. And how do voters view the collaboration between the government and the, the Sweden Democrats in terms of who people think runs the show? Well, I mean, you heard that Richard said that the Sweden Democrats already feel like they're pretty much in government. And mm. that's that's a view that voters share as well, by and large. Yeah. Actually, the DIA in the newspaper, they recently published a poll that found that that voters kind of feel that the Sweden Democrats are the ones that are running the show, despite not actually having any minister posts. So 57% told that poll that the Sweden Democrats had a big impact on the government's policies, which was actually more than the number of people who said the same about the moderates, who are, you know, Mm. in theory, the party that is running the government. And as Richard explained, that's perhaps not surprising because they have been very influential, like especially on migration issues, but possibly also like indirectly on issues like the government abandoning pretty much large parts of Sweden's climate policies, for example, Mm. which we've talked about before on the podcast. What did Aspling tell you about the most controversial questions like um, taking permanent residency away from asylum seekers or sending people back to countries that they deem safe? Well, he kind of said that your readers, because I kind of approached it by saying, you know, our readers are very concerned about this. He goes, your readers have got nothing to fear because this is the permanent residency is only going to be taken away from people who have come to Sweden on asylum. So people who've got permanent mm. residency on a work permit will be able to keep their permanent residencies. Yeah. Which I think says something about how he views asylum seekers, because, you know, quite a lot of our readers and perhaps did come here yeah. on asylum and still work as computer programmers or whatever. Mm. And on sending people home whose countries are safe, he was quite callous about it. I mean, he went further than the government in Denmark, for instance, who Mm. have said that if you come from a region in Syria that's safe, you should go back. He's saying that if anywhere in your home country is safe, so for example, Mogadishu in Somalia, you should go back because you can be safe in your home country somewhere. And this very controversial plan of taking permanent residency away from people, they would say that, you know, it's a pathway to citizenship for people, right? So they want to make citizenship more attractive. If you've been here for a long time, you shouldn't just be a permanent resident. You should strive to become a citizen. But then there will be a lot of people who don't meet the criteria, presumably. Yeah, especially seeing as that they've, they're changing it from five years in Sweden to eight years in Sweden. They're making it harder to become a citizen at the same time as they're taking away permanent residency from people earlier. So yeah, no, if they made it easier to become a citizen, I think that would be an easier argument to, to make. And also, I mean, what he said is, if you've been living here in Sweden and you haven't got a job and you don't fulfil the terms of citizen, you know, you can't, you can't support yourself to the extent that you can become a citizen, then you really shouldn't be here. You know, if you've been here five years and you're still unemployed, then then go home. And he and he and he was. He was just like, go home, leave. It was interesting because he's very, uh, he, he, you know, he's he's a lawyer. He's taught English in China for quite a few years. He's married to a Japanese woman, so he's quite cosmopolitan in a sense. And his English is absolutely perfect, and he's very fluent in English. But at the same time, he has quite 
radical views on on immigration. It was quite interesting. As a kind of the, the new type of Sweden Democrat, he's the, definitely from the more polished, loyally type of Sweden Democrat, of, the, mm. of which there are quite a few in the government offices. I thought it was quite yeah. interesting to, to talk to him, actually, because I've spoken to the old guard quite a lot in the past. So it was interesting mm. to, 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 yeah. You're, to, you're more used to talking to the rural Scanians. I'm more used to talking to the kind of Scanian guy who has his own entrepreneur business, you know, who, who has a, you know, 12 diggers and, you know, is a small businessman. Yeah, I'm more used to those guys. And so it's kind of interesting to talk to the guy who's like international lawyer, travelled all over the world, but is a Sweden Democrat. Um, yeah, and I recommend listeners to uh, go to your article and read read more because it was a very interesting interview. Uh, regular listeners may remember that we partnered before the summer with Stockholm Academic Forum, and we've renewed that partnership now to let you know about their Stockholm Explorative Talks, which is a unique and fascinating event that you really should attend if you have a chance. It takes place at the Royal College of Music in Stockholm on Thursday the 9th of November, and the theme this year is polarization versus pluralism, which, as we've spoken about on this podcast before, is something Sweden badly needs to address if, for example, it's to tackle the corrosive effects of segregation. The way the event works is that academics from Stockholm's 18 universities and higher education institutions meet with artists and business representatives in interdisciplinary discussions. And the twist is that these experts are referred to as explorers. And that's because they're not told in advance exactly what they're going to be talking about. Now, if this has piqued your curiosity and you'd like to attend, and again, it's completely free of charge, you can find a link to sign up in the show notes. But as we heard a couple of minutes ago, the government is clear in its assessment that asylum immigration must be curtailed. And as we discussed last week, a lot of workforce migrants could soon be forced to leave the country. Now, given the increasingly negative portrayal of immigration in political circles, you'd be forgiven for thinking that immigrants have contributed very little to Swedish society. But uh, Richard, you have a theory, don't you, that immigrants are in fact behind some of the most interesting initiatives in Sweden in recent years? Well, I don't know if it's a, a theory, but uh, uh, anecdotally here in Malmo, I, I do I do notice that foreigners make a lot of things happen. And I started thinking about this more because I started this computer programming for children at my local RBF because my son had done it and the company that ran it shut down. And so I, right. I kind of wanted to do it, so I just started it up. And you know, I, it strikes me that none of the none of the Swedish parents did that. And I and I wonder whether foreigners are more likely to kind of be more entrepreneurial in that kind of way. And there's there's this new and, and I, if I, I, there's a lot of it in the moment. Like there's a huge there's this big new street festival called NGBG that takes over kind of warehouses and car mm. mechanic places in on Norregrenjebordsgarten, which is this industrial area outside Malmö, where a lot of illegal clubs used to be. So it's a kind of countercultural centre. It's like a kind of mini Berlin. And it's huge. I mean, if there's like 30,000 people, the whole street is packed. There must be like 20 bands playing at any one time in this kind of intense 24-hour period. And that started by an English guy called Ian Dace. And then there's a, the club, also on Nora Grangeable's Garden, which has like become the live music venue in Malmo, started by an Italian guy. Mm. Uh, there's an English guy I know who used to run kind of electronica nights in a pub in, in Malmo. And he, and he said that the Swedes he knew who were into this kind of slightly geeky electronic music 
kind of always wanted to kind of apply to the commune for a grant and then use it in some kind of public art space. Whereas he's just like, you know, just book the sh- the seller of a pub and take 50 kroner on the door. It's much easier and quicker. <laughs> so I think that I think foreigners are more like that. I think a lot of Swedes are more like, uh, uh, have a tendency to want to go through the institutions that exist and, you know, join RBF or join one of the sports for innings in their village. And there's less of a kind of sense of, well, there's no rugby here. I'll start rugby for kids or, you know. And obviously it's partly that foreigners want to recreate what they want from their life that's missing in Sweden. But like I say, it's also, I think Swedes tend to be more involved in clubs that have existed for years and less likely to start things from scratch, but I might be wrong about that. And, and maybe That's it's a sweet. bit maybe it's a bit harder for foreigners also to get kind of get into those clubs that are already established. Like yeah, for maybe. me as a Swede, it would be much like easier to join an already established club than to have to start my own thing. Hmm. But maybe if you're coming here as a newcomer, those already established clubs are maybe run in Swedish. Uh, maybe they don't advertise themselves very well, so you have to kind of be in the know to join them. You have to know somebody. So it's actually easier to start up your own thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Maybe that's it. Maybe maybe it's it's just a lot easier. Exactly. I think you're right. Yeah, I think you're right too. We're in agreement. Very well We're said, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> so is it a sign, Richard, of how Swedish you've become that you did this through RBF? Yeah, that, that does kind of undermine my own argument. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, no. Yeah. But I did look at other ways of doing it before I found RBF, which makes life so much easier. So that maybe is Swedish. Like I've learned how to use the system and you realise that it is really easy to do civil things through the systems that exist there's so many organizations that can help you do various things that you want to do you know in your personal life in sweden that yeah you don't need to start things up on your own yeah we should probably recommend for anybody who hasn't listened to it we had this bonus episode during the week our interview with anna ekstrom who's the chair of rbf in stockholm and she talked about just that you know how these educational institutions are an untapped resource for immigrants you know as, as soon as you find out how they work and and what they do, you can use them to your benefit. I think it's, uh, yeah, it's something definitely worth exploring for people. But uh, while we're on the subject of things that foreigners and readers of the local are sort of disproportionately interested in, let's talk briefly about some upcoming and ongoing sporting and cultural events. I saw, for example, that we had an explainer on the site about where to watch the Cricket World Cup, which is taking place in India at the moment. And we'll link to that article In the episode notes, the Rugby World Cup is also happening in France and we're now at the semi-final stage. Where can people watch the last few games, Emma? So the second semi-final, which is England versus South Africa, it will be shown by Viasat Sport or you can stream it via Viaplay online, Mm. although it's actually quite pricey in my opinion. But because actually unlike the Cricket World Cup, the Rugby World Cup is actually being broadcast in Sweden. You can probably also just give your local sports bar a, a call and ask if it's on. O'Leary's is otherwise the big go-to pub chain in Sweden for watching sports. Another thing that's happening, the Hindu festival Durga Puja is being celebrated at the moment. Richard, how is that being marked in Sweden for anyone wishing to participate? I mean, I think that's kind of more evidence of foreigners starting things up that's kind of missing in their home country. I mean, apparently the joke among Bengalis is that when if you get far, more than five of them living anywhere in the world, they start a Durga Puja. Uh, and it's the big religious celebration of the year for people from Bengal, which is the area of eastern India around Kolkata and also Bangladesh. 
it's got UNESCO recognition. And in Kolkata, the whole city shuts down for 10 days. And it celebrates Durga, who's the a warrior goddess and the consort of Shiva. But, but from what I understand, you don't have to be religious to celebrate it, right? Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. It's a it, bit like Christmas in Sweden. It, it, it's quite like Christmas in Sweden, especially in Kolkata. Everyone in the whole city celebrates, whatever their religious background. And everyone is welcome to come and visit the celebrations in Stockholm as well. I mean, it's not it's not just for Bengalis. The big there's two big celebrations happening in Stockholm. One is more of a cultural festival, and that's in the Yerfala Cultural Centre in northern Stockholm, and that's bigger and more food and more sort of dancing and stuff. And then there's a more devotional one, which is at the Hindu temple in Sundbyberg. There's also celebrations in Helsingborg, in Gothenburg, in Luleå, all over the place. Another event coming up at the end of next month is the Women's Handball World Cup, which is being held jointly by Sweden, Norway and Denmark. Emma, where in Sweden are matches being held for anyone interested in getting tickets? So in Sweden, matches are being held in Gothenburg and Helsingborg. And uh, Sweden will be playing its group stage in Gothenburg against uh, China, Croatia and Senegal. And in Helsingborg, it's uh, Montenegro, Hungary, Paraguay and Cameroon. And I really recommend it. It's a fun sport. It's a fast sport. And the Swedish women's team has actually been looking increasingly promising. Although I think both Denmark and Norway are probably more likely to maybe be contender for the top spot. And uh, the final will actually be played in Herning in Denmark. Are you a handball fan? I am a handball fan, Richard. Do you play it? I do not. Okay. (laughs) Great. Thanks both for that roundup. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We'll move on now to the biggest story in Sweden this week, the terrorist attack that took place in Brussels on Monday evening in which two Swedes were killed and a third sustained serious injuries shortly before Sweden's men's football team were due to play Belgium in a European Championship qualifying match. So let's recap what happened now before we get into analysis of why Swedes have become a target for Islamist terrorists. Uh, So first of all, how did the gunman carry out his attack? Uh, So there have been videos shared online, which I do not recommend Googling. But they, they show how a man on a scooter and he's wearing like an orange fluorescent jacket and he pulls up and he just starts shooting people. And it happened mm. kind of just north of the city centre in Brussels around 7pm or so. You can also see how he chases people into an apartment building trying to shoot them. And then after that, he, he gets on his scooter and he 
he just flees the scene. Then shortly after the attack, he he filmed himself saying that he had he had killed Swedish people as revenge in the name of Muslims. Police actually only the following morning managed to track him down to to a cafe where where they shot him, and we later found out that he died from those injuries. ISIS claimed responsibility for the attack. But that's probably more kind of in a broader sense, because they've been encouraging attacks like these. But prosecutors seem to believe that like everything indicates that this man sort of acted alone, which of course people didn't know at first. So there was a lot of initial concerns from Swedes in Brussels, like, are there more shooters out there? Are we at risk right now? Should we be taking off our Swedish football jerseys? And so on. Yeah, and he was and he was still on the run. Exactly. That night. Um, yes. And when did um, news of the attack reach other supporters, and what was reaction like at the King Baduin Stadium in Brussels among players, fans, and officials? DN interviewed some of the people who were there, and they are saying that almost as soon as kickoff started in the match, you know, just like um, just a few minutes after the match started, that people started to get alerts on their phones saying that a terrible attack had happened in uh, it that seemed to target Swedish fans in Brussels and and they said you know you could just see how the atmosphere changed in the stadium in like the first 10 20 minutes of the game as more and more yeah. people stopped watching and just started looking at their phones and mm. but the players carried on playing until half time what the organizers said is that they had actually received news of the attack about 10 minutes before kickoff but they decided to play it anyway because they thought with a killer on the loose, the stadium's actually the safest place for the supporters and presumably the players to be. You know, they're yeah. in a safe area where they can protect all the entry points. But at halftime, the Swedish players said they didn't feel it was right to continue and the Belgian yeah. players agreed and then the match was stopped. And the, the fans were then held in the stadium for hours. I think the last left at about 4am. So they were there mm. for a good six hours after realising what, what had happened. And the description was that the, the atmosphere was actually quite good, even though it was quite cold. And they kept their spirits up by singing songs all together and cheering Sweden, Sweden from both the Belgian mm. side and the Swedish side. And after two and a half hours, the Belgian supporters were allowed to go after which the Swedish supporters were evacuated very slowly and carefully and they were told to remove any Swedish scarves and any Swedish colours and they were given police escorts. I think some went directly to the airport. I'm not sure about that. Others went to their hotels where they had police guards outside for the night. And the Swedish Foreign Ministry also sent out text messages to all Swedish phone numbers in Belgium telling them to remove any Swedish football shirts, skirts and scarves and telling them how to behave. Uh, so I thought it was kind of, I didn't realise they could do that. You can just like send a blanket SMS to everybody mm. in, a, in a country. And then people sort of started flying back, you know, the next day and came straight back to Sweden. And a lot of politicians were obviously quick to condemn the attack, but there was some sort of political point scoring as well, wasn't there? Um, a Sweden Democrat MP found herself in hot water over a message she posted on social media. Can you tell us about that, Emma? So, Fredrik Reinfeldt, who's um, a former moderate prime minister and is the new chair of the Swedish Football Association, mm. he, w- he was there in the arena. And as soon as it happened, he was you know, whisked away by security. He said afterwards that he had only been moved for a couple of dozens of metres and he was actually still in the arena. But uh, Jessica Stegerud, who's the Sweden Democrat MP that you're referring to, she wrote on Twitter, or X as it's now called, that uh, Reinfeldt was given a police escort out of the arena after two probably Swedish football fans were killed by an Islamist. 
He, if anyone, should have been forced to stay there with no police protection at all. My thoughts go to the dead and their families. My contempt goes to all the politicians, including Fredrik Reinfeldt, who laid the foundations for this. Now, like what she is referring to there when she says laid the foundation for this is probably a reference to like the kind of open immigration policy that Sweden had under the Reinfeldt era. Like he gave yeah. a famous speech in 2014 where he said to ask Swedes to like open their hearts to immigrants and refugees yeah. seeking safety in the country. Like one thing that you should remember is that her comments about this comes against the backdrop of two senior politicians in Sweden having been assassinated in in just my lifetime. So you know there's a kind of a lot of tension around this, and uh, Stegrud is also like widely touted as a possible successor to current Sweden Democrat leader Jimmy Åkesson. Uh, so she got a lot of criticism for that tweet. How did the Prime Minister respond? Well, this kind of touches a little bit on what we were talking about earlier about who runs the show in the government, because uh, the Prime Minister Ulf Kristersson, who, by the way, was a minister in Fredrik Reinfeldt's government, mm. he was a bit criticised by the opposition for being too weak when responding to this. Uh, he said that Stegrud had shown a lack of judgement, and this was definitely not the time for careless or reckless comments like that. But he also kind of said that it was a matter matter for the Sweden Democrats to deal with and not for him to sort of get involved with too much. So yeah, I don't know. Uh, the Sweden Democrats uh, group leader in parliament, she, she called the criticism of the tweet ridiculous because she argued that, well, the story here should be that two Swedes got killed and not that somebody tweeted about it. And what do we know about the attacker and his motives? Uh, he was called Abdesalam Lasued. He's a 45-year-old man of Tunisian origin, and he had sought asylum in Belgium and been rejected and then disappeared and gone underground. So he was living as a sort of paperless refugee in Brussels. As to his motives, in his video that he uploaded, he claimed allegiance to Islamic State, and he said he had killed three Swedes in the name of God. So he didn't explicitly mention Quran burnings or explain why he had targeted Swedes. But Islamic State, along with at least four other Islamic terror groups, had called for revenge to be taken against Sweden after, you know, one or other of, of the Quran burnings there's been so far this year. So it could well have been related to the Quran burnings. He also followed an account on TikTok called Sweden Injustice, which mm. spreads the theory that Swedish social services are kidnapping Muslim children. So it could yeah. have been that, that caused him to target Swedes. And finally, he had himself been in Sweden and had a pretty miserable time. So he had lived in a disused daycare facility for dogs, a hundagus, outside Gothenburg. And he had also been arrested in Malmo. Actually, it was a flat in Malmo that got raided by the police and they found 100 grams of cocaine which he then claimed was for his own use. And so he was then sent to prison for that. So he, he in prison, he seems to have had a pretty tough time. And he threatened a female prison guard that he would stab her if they met her on the out, that he would knife her if they ever met on the outside. And he said, pluck out her eyes or something. It's pretty, mm. that, that's according to Aftonblad. I don't know if that's true. And he was 
frequently placed in solitary confinement after fights with other inmates. He also called to be able to see an imam. So there's this kind of mixture of kind of extreme violence and sort of religious devotion. After his prison sentence, he was then sent back to Italy because he had first arrived in Lampedusa in 2011, I think. And it also turns out that he had had problems with the law in Tunisia. He had been arrested and imprisoned in Tunisia as well. So he's a pretty rough character. And also on the days before the attacks, he had been active on social media and commented on the murder of a six-year-old Palestinian-American boy in the US, which other people outside Sweden have proposed as a potential motive. But I reckon he it's he's probably planned this before because these matches are planned months and months in advance. So he would have known that Sweden and Swedish supporters were coming to Brussels you know, six months ago, if he had done his research. So it could have been planned for for months. Yeah. And as as Emma said, he was uh, shot dead the, by Belgian police the morning after the attacks. Emma, I don't expect you to speak for all Swedes, but can I ask how you reacted when you heard about the attack? I mean, does it feel personal when the perpetrator seems to be motivated by a hatred of Sweden? All, all this hatred, it's just sad and it's sad when people die in general. So I don't feel necessarily that it's personal in the sense of I'm Swedish, they were Swedish. And also I'm I'm a journalist, so I'm kind of I'm used to reporting on grim events and kind of getting a bit detached from them. But I mean one thing that I would say is something that has shifted in recent years, not not just this incident, but that as a Swede you were kind of used to people abroad liking you or in the worst case just ignoring you and i think that's come to a sh- as a shock to a lot of swedes actually that what well, we can't just go abroad and be swedish and be loved for that yeah i mean the image of sweden abroad has taken a real hit hasn't it in the last few months with all the quran burnings yeah i mean it has in in the past few years also like i don't know there's been so many things no, the the refugee crisis and how Sweden responded to that in various ways has kind of affected the image in different ways, in different circles, depending on who you ask. Sweden's move to the far right has affected the image. The handling of COVID has affected the image. Like it's kind of got a bit more polarised. Not all of those things are related, of course. but Disinformation campaign about the Swedish social services kidnapping Muslim children. I mean, that has gained a lot of traction in certain circles, hasn't it? It has, yeah. And that's been mentioned uh, multiple times. I mean, the Swedish security services, when they raised the terror level threat in Sweden from three to four a few months ago, that was one of the things that they mentioned. Like everyone focused on the Quran burnings at the time, but this disinformation campaign has had a huge impact, perhaps perhaps a bigger one than a lot of people realise. And I think a lot of people kind of when they raised the terror threat level, started sort of like ex- expecting that something might happen in Sweden. But I think Swedes perhaps didn't expect that they would be targeted outside of Sweden. That takes us to the end of this week's episode. You can find links in the show notes to articles about the terror attack and all of the other topics we've talked about this week. Thank you for listening to Sweden in Focus and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. Our panellists this week were Emma Lovegrain and Richard Orange. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. 
I'm Paul O'Mahony and we'll be back again next Saturday. Until then, take care. That's all for this week's free edition of Sweden in Focus. If you'd like to hear a full-length version of the podcast each week, as well as an additional midweek episode with more interviews and analysis, please upgrade to Membership Plus. Make sure to check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade. Sweden in Focus is a podcast by The Local Europe. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. The publisher is James Savage.